Merry Christmas. Thank you. It's really simple. See, it doesn't matter what I say. All you have to do is, for you Catholics, all you have to do is say, and also with you. It's really simple. Yo mama, and also, see, I mean, it just works in every way, right? Merry Christmas. Somebody still said Merry Christmas over there. We're glad you're here. Now it doesn't feel like Christmas outside, so our HVAC unit is having the wrong time of the month, and it's making it feel like Christmas inside. Sorry that it's freezing in here, but, um, you know, it's the North Pole. We're going for that effect. We have uh, 12 Christmas Eve services, and um, we are doing that for a reason. And it's not because it makes us feel good, not because we think we're cool and we want everybody to see how cool we are. We do 12 Christmas Eve services because eternity is hanging in the balance. I want you to understand that. Okay? Your friends, your family, your neighbors, whatever, could be in eternity in the kingdom of heaven because you took one little extra measure and you handed them a brochure out of the bulletin or you sent them an evite that we have online or you did something, might have been a little bit out of your comfort zone and you said, you know what, why don't you come to a Christmas Eve service at Parkview? It's going to be cool, Trans-Siberian Orchestra, blah, 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 all the great stuff. I mean, we're filming videos, we're doing amazing stuff. It's going to be really cool. But it's not going to be really cool so that everybody can go, look how cool that church is. It's going to be really cool so that you can invite somebody so that maybe there'll be people in heaven someday who said, you know what? I found Jesus that night in Christmas Eve, 2012. I hope that you will invite people. Now, Sunday people, if you look around right now, I mean, even as the bears are getting ready to kick off at noon, which usually hurts our attendance a little bit, you can see that we're pretty full. Over the, here's what's really weird about our attendance, okay? Um, in January... It's the same thing as health clubs. In January, people start going back to church. Okay? They make their New Year's resolution and they say, I'm going to go back to church. So we will literally grow by 10 to 20% every January. That's what's going to happen. And there's not 10 to 20% room in here. So next week, I just want you to pray about this. Next week, I'm going to ask for 100 families to say, okay, we're going to switch over to Saturday night. Now, let me tell you something. Last night, it was six degrees warmer in this auditorium, okay? That's how cranky our system is, right? It was six degrees warmer. It felt like Florida. So you want to come on Saturday night, commit to it, and open up some room for everybody else to be able to come to. Because the visitors, the guests, they're going to come at 11 o'clock. That's, the, that's like the funnel everything flows through. So please think about doing that. I'll ask you to raise your hand next week. Think about it. Talk about it with your family. Doing the story, if you're visiting with us, we're going through the story. 31 weeks to take us all the way through the Bible and help us to understand how it all goes together. How many of you did your reading this week? chapter 11 okay who are we talking about this week David David. yeah David I love talking about David why because he was a warrior because he was a leader because he was an artist he had that weird mix of a personality but I got to be honest one of the reasons I like studying David is because he was worse than me I mean next week we're going to find again for you Catholics we're going to find that David committed the mortal sins of adultery and murder And yet, after all of that, the Bible in Acts chapter 13 says that God said, I have found David, son of Jesse, as a man after my own heart. Maybe they're not mortal sins after all, because David was a man after God's own heart, even through the good and even through the bad. 
background of chapter 11 today is the nation of Israel wanted a king. They wanted to be like everybody else. They didn't want to just follow God. They wanted to follow a king like all the rest of the nations. And so God said, you want a king? I'll give you a king. And he gave him Saul, who was head and shoulders above every other person. He was a tall, good-looking, great guy. And he started off pretty good. Once he found his donkey, he started off pretty good. But he kept hitting decline on the invitations from God. He kept hitting maybe or decline. Whenever God would give him a calendar alert and say, hey, I want you to do something, he would decline. And this is what we learned last week. When you decline God, you will decline. So God said, Samuel's time for a new king. Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm at the beginning of chapter 11. Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be the king. What time is it? It's anointing time. It's time to go get me a new king. Now, where did they go? Bethlehem. Okay. I want you to see how important this is. Mary and Joseph went to the Bethlehem to register because he was of the house and lineage of David. And David was from Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of Boaz. And we study this as we study this in order. We start to see Bethlehem was not just some random thing. This was something that God had planned. As a matter of fact, here's the beginning of the New Testament. How many of you started to read the New Testament and thought, wow, this is, this is boring. This is terrible. You know, where, where is it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, right? Well, I mean, you've got to have a good intro to your, to your book, am I right? A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham, father of Isaac, father of Jacob, father of Judah, father of Perez, Hezron, Ram. Hmm, what time is it? I wonder if American Idol started yet. Perez, the father of Hezron, Ram, Aminadab, that's a fun name, I like that. Nashon, father of Salmon, I think, it's not Salmon, it's Salmon. The father of Boaz. Bo, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, okay? See, if you know the whole story, do you see how cool this is? Because you're like, okay, I don't know any of those dudes, but Boaz, that was a cool story. Check this out. Whose mother was Rahab. First woman listed in the New Testament, one of only two women listed in the genealogy of Jesus, was a former prostitute from Jericho, from the wrong side of the tracks. All of a sudden, if you understand how the story goes together, you're like, bam, this is awesome. Boaz, father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth from Moab. I remember her. Boaz redeemed her. This is awesome. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of King David. You see how this all goes? There's a whole sermon in there all by itself. Because God is never arbitrary, my friends. He's always got a plan. When they arrived... Samuel, the prophet, saw the oldest son, Eliab, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Because the oldest child is always the most important. Am I right? Always the one with the most potential. I'm the only oldest child in the whole crowd? Okay, whatever. All right, come on. That's always the way it is. Let's just be honest. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart because it's always about the heart. That's what it always is about. So he says, hey, uh, Jesse, let me see the rest of your sons. And Jesse had all seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Well, we've got a problem. Jesse said, so he asked Jesse, you got any more? 
Got any more boys? Because there's an issue here. God said one of your sons was supposed to be king, and none of these seven are the right ones. And you would think if you had eight sons, you wouldn't forget that you had another one. I don't know. Maybe you do. Uh, somebody sent me this PowerPoint of slideshows of, of boys and why boys need mothers. Here's the reason I don't think you could forget any boys. Because this is what boys are like. I didn't have any boys. I don't know these things. But... <laughs> This is why you don't forget your boys. <laughs> yep, that was a little Timmy right there. <laughs> I'm hungry, Mama. Oh, let's paint. Oh, yeah, I know. That's good, isn't it? Let's draw. <laughs> yeah, that's boys right there. How could you forget there was another boy? I don't think he forgot. He said, they're still the youngest, Jesse said. He's tending sheep. I don't think he forgot about David. I think it's just that he didn't think David was important. But imagine this. Imagine you've got eight sons, and the Samuel the prophet is going to show up, and he's going to anoint one of your sons to be king, and you only get seven of them there. You get seven of them to dress up, and they're all there. They line up like Sound of Music, and they've got their little pitch pipe ready to go. You know, They're all right there standing in line. But you didn't even invite the younger one. What does that tell you? That tells me that Jesse didn't think there was much potential in his youngest son. Because he looked at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. David was probably only 14 or 15 years old. There's no way Jesse would have thought he would have been the king of Israel. That's just not the way it works. What do we learn from this right up front? Can I just say this? Young people out there, listen to me. David had a heart like God's as a young person, and he did something. Don't think you've got to wait. Old people like me, this is why we have children's and student ministries and why they're so important to Parkview, because you've got you to let the kids get it at an early age. Jesse couldn't see what, what God saw in David. Samuel couldn't see what God saw in David. But the Lord said when he saw David, the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. This is the one. This is the one I want, the 14-year-old, the kid. So I had to ask myself as I was processing this this week, what is it that gave David a heart like God's? What is it that could cause David to be somebody that, I mean, if you want, you want to know what I want on my tombstone, it would be, he was a man after God's own heart, just like David. How do I get that? And I started thinking, I came up with three ideas for you. How do you have a heart like David? Well, the first thing that David had was solitude. I mean, think about this. David is a shepherd. He's out in the fields at... He's out in the fields with sheep. There's nothing else out there. No iPod, no cell phone, no laptop, nothing. Okay, just him and God. Now, before you go saying, yeah, you know what? My life's too busy. I got to move to the country and find me a fine wife and find me a fiddle and the sun's coming up. I got cakes on the griddle. Life ain't nothing but a funny, funny riddle. Thank God. No, you don't. You would not make it as a country boy. Okay, I know that and neither would I. You like Comcast and you like indoor plumbing, okay? Let's just be honest. We're suburban people. That's what we are. But this is what the problem is. This is what our life looks like, isn't it? Somebody sent me this this week. This is Clark Griswold at his best, right? This is, I saw this picture and I thought, this is exactly what life looks like for us sometimes, especially at Christmas time, right? I'm plugged in over here, I'm plugged in over there, and everything in my life is crazy. You have to figure out a way to schedule in some solitude in your life, some time alone with God, if you ever want to have a heart like God. It's a great book written by David Getz. I love the title. It's called Death by Suburbs. 
In, in his book, Death by Suburbs, he wrote, it's not about becoming a monk, it's the little stuff. Without a line item for quietness, the days get used up carpooling, working on another degree, making partner in the firm, planning another birthday party, and one wakes up one morning and finds that the years have slipped by. And perhaps many dreams have been fulfilled, a larger house, vice president, condo after the kids are gone, but the soul, listen to this, has become a boarded up discount store in an empty parking lot with weeds rising up out of the cracks in the pavement. If that sounds like your soul today, you might, need some sol- you might need to schedule in a line item for some solitude. David wrote the Psalms because he spent all this time out with God in solitude, in a place where he could get unplugged from everything else. Second reason I think David had a heart like God was faithfulness. Faithfulness. Do you think it was fun being a shepherd? Do you understand about being a shepherd? Do you understand about sheep? Do you know that you have never ever seen trained sheep in a circus? Have you? You want to know why? Because they are dumber than snot. Sheep are the dumbest animals there are out there. When Jesus called himself the good shepherd, he was not being nice. He was digging on us, people. You don't realize this. This is a true story. I read, I read this week, I'd heard it several years ago, a true story from Turkey. You can go look it up on the internet. One day, the shepherds weren't paying enough attention, and one sheep decided to jump off a cliff. I don't know if it was depressed, if it was a Republican, I don't know what was going on, but one sheep just literally said, hey, I'll see what happens, and he jumped off. And I'm not making this up, 1,500 sheep followed him off the cliff. That's how dumb they are. Only 450 of them died. The rest of them were saved by landing on a big pile of fluffy sheep. (laughs) Seriously. Go look at it. Go Google it. It's amazing. That's how dumb sheep are. So I ask you, is that a fun job? Is, that, is it fun being a shepherd? Do you think David was like, oh, this is so awesome? No, you're just taking care of stupid sheep. And some of you are in jobs right now and you're thinking, I'm just taking care of this stupid job. Or some of you are you're, you're stay-at-home moms or dads and you're just doing the same mundane thing with your kids over and over and you think, man, this is monotonous. Man, this is boring. I want to tell you something. If you are faithful, Jesus said, if you are faithful in the little things, you will be faithful in the large things. David was faithful as a shepherd, and God made him faithful as a king. That's the way that it works. You be faithful with the stuff that you've got, and God will give you a heart like his, and he'll move you up to the next thing that you need to take care of. Third reason I think David had a heart like God is difficulty. We find out that being a shepherd wasn't always easy. It might have been boring, but it wasn't always easy. There was a lion that attacked him one time. There was a bear that attacked him one time. We're going to find that in the story later. We also find out that maybe part of the reason that David didn't line up for the anointing time with Samuel was because him and his brothers weren't on such great terms. It seems like when we hear the story a little bit later, and I'll point it out to you, it seems like his brothers were kind of mean to him as the baby brother. They were mean to him and they didn't like him. Beth Moore has some insight about this. Bible teacher Beth Moore, she says, I believe David's wisdom and meditative nature got their start in the loneliness of a little brother accustomed to being put down and ostracized. Did he inherit the duties of keeping sheep or were woolly creatures preferable to the company of taunting brothers? Have you ever felt like the youngest son, the consummate little brother? You don't have to be male or have brothers to feel that way. In fact, sometimes I don't think any of us can escape the feeling completely. Somewhere, sometime, you've probably been treated as if you didn't exist, as if you weren't wanted, as if you didn't matter. 
But there were difficulties in his life. We know this for a fact. So hang on, Tim. Are you telling me that if I want to have a heart for God, it might not be fun getting there? Yeah, that's, that's what I'm telling you. I don't think David was born with a God heart. There's no magic God heart pill that you can take. It's going to take some time to develop. You're going to have to grow into it. And, and there are things that are going to happen. I don't think you should put yourself in the place of difficulty or monotony or boredom so that you can get a heart for God. I mean, don't switch over to being a Cub fan just so you can have a heart for God. It's not worth that. But guess what? Maybe you're going through something right now, through some difficulty or some loneliness or some boredom in your life, and there's some hardship in your life. It may be that you could let that push you towards God because what's going to happen is you're going to get closer to God or you're going to get farther away from God, one way or the other. You You can get blessed or you can get belligerent as your difficulties come in your life. So I believe that, I mean, that's just, that's just your little free part right there, okay? I believe if you want a heart for God, it's solitude, faithfulness, and difficulty. Those things will drive you to God, and you let them drive you to God over and over and over again. And then there's a test. There's usually going to be a test if you're going to have a heart for God. And David's test came still pretty early. He's still pretty young. We don't know how young he was, but he was too young for us to be able to realize that he could go to war. He was too young for battle, so he was under 18, I guess. And one day, he heads out to take his brother some lunch at the battle lines. And it says, Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with a valley between them. And a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out from the Philistine camp, and he was over nine feet tall. It says he was six cubits in a span. They estimate nine and a half, maybe nine foot nine. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he wore a coat of scale of armor that weighed 5,000 shekels, which is 200 pounds. Let me give you some perspective on Goliath, okay? I am a medium-sized person. I know the camera makes me look bigger, but I'm really just a medium-sized person. I used to be six foot... Now I'm 5'11". I'm on my way to being an Oompa Loompa if I live long enough. I don't know what's going on. I'm shrinking, I'm telling you that. But, but I'm, I'm a medium-sized guy. Bring out Goliath for me. Here is your life-size model of what Goliath would have looked like. And before you say, oh, that's not even possible, there was a man in Alton, Illinois in the 30s who was 8'11", Robert Wadlow. He had gigantism. That was the disease that he suffered from, and he weighed 500 pounds, and he was 8 foot 11. Goliath had 200 pounds of armor, and he was 9 foot 9. Okay, get this. Like Shaq here, Goliath there. This is crazy. This is the guy that came out every day. It says he would come out and shout at the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? We don't need to have a battle and have lots of people die. Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. And if he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. Isn't that great? This is not some red rover, red rover, let David come over thing, okay? This is two armies. This is two gods. This is two nations. This is what it was all going to be about. And it says, for 40 days the Philistine came forward every morning and every evening and took his stand. For 40 days. They came out from their tents. 
And they looked out, and there was the big guy again, and they ran back again. And I wonder, what is your giant today? Maybe you don't have one, and that's fantastic, but if, there, if something just popped into your mind immediately, I'm guessing that there's a giant in your life, and I'm guessing that you've probably been looking at that giant for a while. Maybe 40 days and 40 nights, day and night, coming back and every time. And it, it might not be a person, it might be a problem, it might be a relationship, it might even be an opportunity. But one thing I know, it seems really, really big, and it something you've been looking at for quite a while. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Dismayed and terrified. I get this. As your pastor, I get this. We've had a lot of tragedy lately in our congregation. I don't know why. It's at the holidays. We've had young people die of crazy things. We've had young people die of heroin overdoses. There's a heroin thing going on in our area. It doesn't make any sense to me. We've, we've had young people die of other crazy causes. We've had lots of financial problems with people in our congregation. Many of you have family issues, and the holidays just seem to magnify that stuff. So those two words, dismayed and terrified, might come to your forefront of your brain as well. But it doesn't have to be that way if you have God's heart in you. I remember David's too young to even go into battle, so he's taking supplies out to his older brothers. And it says, they ran to the, David ran to the battle lines and asked his brothers how they were. And as he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. I love that. That's what giants do. Their usual defiance. And David heard it. And when the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. I mean, this is kind of funny to me. I mean, it's like every day they get up and they go out and there's Goliath and they go running back again. It's like overnight they think maybe he had a heart attack or maybe he tripped over his big giant sword and he's not going to be there. And they go running out and he's there again and again and again. And David asked the men standing near him, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? you imagine a 14-year-old looking at that, saying, who is this guy? That's the heart of David. That's the heart of a champion. That's who David was. So let me give you some lessons. I'm going to go on through the rest of the story and give you some lessons of how you can learn to deal with the giants in your own life. The first one is this. When you meet a giant, people are going to discourage you. We pick right up with the next passage, um, the middle of page 148. Here's Eliab again. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom, listen to this sarcasm, with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is, and you've only come down here to watch the battle. What a fascinating contrast, isn't it? David's older brother, the guy who is the biggest and the oldest, who should have been the one fighting the giant, is afraid. He goes running out every morning, goes running back, calling for his mommy every afternoon because he doesn't want to go fight the giant. David shows up and says, I'll do this. How embarrassing it must have been for Eliab, the oldest brother, who should have been going out to fight, to realize his younger little punk teenage brother was going to decide to go out and fight this guy. And it's the same little pipsqueak brother who that prophet, by the way, came that one day and anointed with oil. I'm not liking this. Here's what's interesting about the contrast between Eliab and David. Eliab has a big body but a small heart. And this is the last time we ever hear about him in the Bible. Don't name your kid Eliab. That's not a good one. David 
has no size, just heart, and there are 62 chapters about him in the Bible. Huh? Is that cool? I love this story. Okay? People are going to try to discourage you, and usually the people that are going to discourage you from fighting your giant are the people who are too daggum chicken to do it themselves. Isn't that true? They're afraid to do it themselves. It's usually the ones without any heart that are going to say, oh, you can't do that. You shouldn't go on that missions trip. You might get sick. You shouldn't teach that kid's class. You've got stuff to do on the weekends. You might want to go somewhere. You shouldn't give that money to that cause. You need to save it for a rainy day. You shouldn't use your home for a small group. People are going to mess it up. You shouldn't adopt that child. It's going to mess up your family. They're going to say those things to you. Who are those people? They're usually the people who are too afraid to do anything themselves. Great story from last night. One of our great families reminded me that I made that exact same statement when I preached about David in 2006. And when I said the statement about, you know, nobody, you shouldn't adopt, it's going to mess up your family, something clicked in their brain. They had been thinking and praying about it, and they decided that was God's word, and they were going to go adopt. And three-year-old Avery from China was running around here last night hugging me, giving me high fives because they decided not to listen to the critics. They decided to listen to God and do something about it. Isn't that awesome? And maybe that's what God's asking you to do too. Hey, it's not just Eliab who doesn't think David can do it. Nobody thinks David could do it. I mean, King Saul doesn't think he can either. David says to Saul, no one lose heart on account of the Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. And Saul said, you can't go fight the Philistine. You're only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. You are just a boy, and he is a man. Are you kidding me? And here's the difference. Here's your tweetable for the day. Saul thought, big guy, big problem. David thought, big guy, big target. I mean, how do you miss that, right? That's pretty easy. It's pretty simple. Here's the second lesson. When you meet a giant, don't forget what God did for you last time. As we move on. David said to Saul, hey, don't worry about me. Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it and I struck it and I rescued the sheep from its mouth. And when it turned on me, I seized it by its hair and I struck it and I killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. Because he has defied me? No, because he has defied the living God, my great big God that I believe in. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. David figured out a long time ago that the battle is not ours, it's the Lord's. It's not our problem. You don't have to be confident in your own ability. You have to be confident in God's ability. And David didn't start with giants. He started smaller with lions and bears. Doesn't seem small to me, but he started smaller than giants. And when he wasn't afraid of the wild animals, God moved him up at that point to giants. That's what happened. That's what God does. When you're faithful in little things, God is going to make you faithful in big things. All David had to do was look back and remember that God was with him back then and know that God would be with him now. So I ask you, Has God ever brought you through a fight? I mean, think back. Maybe it wasn't a giant or a lion or a bear. Maybe just a little animal, just a squirrel or a chipmunk or a killer rabbit, something. Has God ever done anything for you? Because if you will just spend a moment and think about that, you can can realize that if he was faithful in that moment and you are faithful in that moment, maybe it's time to graduate up. David was confident. 
David wrote this in the 23rd Psalm. He wrote, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. David is like a cat, man, in front of the police dogs. Forget about it. I am not worried about this. I am not worried about this at all. So here's what you need to remember. Next time you see a giant, remember the bear. Think back to what God has done for you before. We go on. So Saul said to David, all right, dude, go on, and the Lord be with you. But Saul's still thinking like a human. So Saul's thinking, and remember, Saul was head and shoulders above everybody else. He was a big guy himself. He wasn't Goliath big, but he was a big guy. So he said, here, put on my armor. Uh, And Saul dressed David in his own tunic and a coat of armor and the helmet. And David fastened the sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. This This is a little boy trying to put on his daddy's shoes and his suit. And he's walking around going, how am I going to fight a giant like this? I'm going to trip and fall down. This is, this is not going to work. So he says, I cannot go in these because I am not used to them. I can't do this. So he took them off, and he took the staff in his hand, and he got five smooth stones from the stream, and he put them in a pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine, which brings me to lesson number three. When you meet a giant, use your own battle gear. Don't fight like somebody else. Don't fight like somebody you wish you were. You fight with what you've got. You've got gifts and abilities. You've got things that God gave you, so use those. What was David good at? Was he good at fighting with swords? No. When would he have fought with swords? He was a shepherd. What was he good at? When you're a shepherd, you have a lot of time on your hands. And one of the ways that they would hunt back in that day, and actually a weapon of war, was a sling. It was a long strip of leather with a pouch on the end of it. And they would, they would sling a rock. And this could be a rock up to like the size of a baseball. Right, don't picture some little guy with a slingshot and a little stone trying to kill the giant. This is different. This is one of these deals, and he would swing it around, and he got so good at it, he could probably hit a target 100 yards away. And they would sling a rock 100 miles an hour. You get hit with a rock 100 miles an hour, it's not going to be a good day. That was his strength. That's what he knows. David wasn't just always strumming on the harp or praying out there. He was also... You know, doing his thing. He was also learning how to be a good hunter. So when it came time to go fight Goliath, he didn't think, oh, well, I, you know, Goliath has got all that stuff on. I better go get all that stuff on and go fight him. No, he's like, no, I know what I've got. I'm going to use what I've got. That's, that's my strength, and I'm going to do that. We've had a young couple with us this weekend, and a young man is going to come and intern with us uh, this next summer and for a year he's going to be an intern with me he's going to try to learn some of the preaching stuff that he can get and learn how to do church and you know I, I, he was sitting here in three of the services and i said you know every every time i said i said chaz first thing i'm going to tell you when you come here is don't try to be like me because i'll get you fired in most churches don't don't do that okay you be you you be your own strength whatever you've got that's what you need to do If you're good with a sword, then take the sword. If you're good with a sling, then do the sling. Fourth thing, last thing, when you meet a giant, don't be intimidated. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with a shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. And he looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome. And he despised him, ruddy little handsome boy. And he said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, fee fi fo fum. I smell the blood, and, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. 
But David's not intimidated. I mean, picture this. Okay? You've, got, you've got Goliath on one side over here, and, and he's yelling at the, uh, at the Philistines, hey, why don't somebody come and fight me? And they send out a 14-year-old boy, and he's like, oh, come on, you've got to be kidding me. And all the people behind him are like, oh, Goliath is going to kill that kid. And you've got all the Israelite army over here going, oh, that kid's going to die. This is terrible. And David wasn't listening to them, and he wasn't listening to them. He wasn't listening to anybody. Because here's your leadership axiom for the day. They say that a leader who keeps his ear to the ground too much allows his rear end to become an easy target. Okay? You don't want to listen to the critics. You don't want to listen to the people that are going to tell you you can't do it because they're wrong. What does David do? David is not only not intimidated... David charged. As the Philistine moved closer to him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. I love that. You know, in Ephesians 6, God gives us the battle armor that we're supposed to wear as we fight the fight of the Spirit of God. And there is a shield, and there is a sword, and there's helmet, and there's shoes, but there is no buttocks protection device of the Holy Spirit. Because there's never a time when we're supposed to be running away from the fight. We don't ever run away. We charge. David said to the Philistine, You come at me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come at you in the name of the Lord Almighty. Isn't this rich? Then he goes on, he says, This day the Lord will hand you over to me. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. The whole world will know that David is awesome? No. The whole world will know that Israel is awesome? No. The whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And as the Philistine moved closer to him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him, reaching into his bag, taking out a stone. He slung it and struck the Philistine in the forehead. The only vulnerable place you could hit the giant, the only place where there wasn't armor, and he took the sling and he used his gifts and abilities and the almighty power of the almighty God that was with him, his great big God that he worshipped, and they went together and it hit the giant and he fell down. And this is really good. And it says... David ran and stood over him. Hang on to that for a second. Giants don't look very big when they're lying down. David went and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine sword, drew it, killed him, cut off his head, and the Philistines saw that their hero was dead. They turned and they ran. They turned and they ran. And the Israelites won the battle that day. There's a lot of lessons in this story, isn't there? I mean, it's crazy how much good stuff there is in here. But this is the thing I want you to go home with right here. You've got to decide in your life if you are going to be a big person with a little G God or a little person with a big G God. Just notice the contrast. Samuel said, or uh, Goliath said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Notice the little g, by his gods, his made-up gods. Well, I'm going to curse you by my God and my God and my God. He was a big person with a little God. And what do you have when you're a big person with a little God? you got nothing but you. And David said, Well, I'm just a little person with a big God. I come at you in the name of the Lord. And i got a big G God, and that makes all the difference. And some of you are like, yeah, well, that was David. What about me? How about this for you? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. That's for you. 
The big G God is living inside of you. How about not by might or power or spirit? It's by my spirit, says the Lord. That's for you. How about this is a victory that overcomes the world? It's our faith. That's the victory that we have. How about I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength? Those are for you. The big G God lives inside of you. If you have Jesus Christ as your Savior, He lives inside of you. And that power is available for you. So maybe it's time to start living that way. Listen to the full text when David shouts back to Goliath. You come at me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come at you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And that was a bad idea. Because this day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I will strike you down, and I will cut off your head. And today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Six times, in case you weren't counting, six times in that little paragraph. He says, the battle is the Lord's. It's not my problem. I'm a little G. I'm just a little guy, little G guy with a big G God. That's all I am, but that's all that really matters. And if the battle is the Lord's, it doesn't matter how big your giant is. It doesn't matter at all. Here's what David said in the Psalms when he had later battles. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? He is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Boy, did they. Why? Because he was a little G guy with a big G God. Dwight Moody said, The world is yet to see what God could do through one person who is totally devoted to God. I'm not sure that's completely true because I think David might have been pretty close to that, but I know what he's saying. He's saying the same thing that Old Testament writer said, that the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. If your heart is a heart for God, God is actually, He's not waiting for you. He's not waiting for you to come to Him. He's actually searching for you. And He's looking for one little window of faith inside of you. One little window of heart inside of you so that you can rise up and conquer the giants that are in front of you. That's what He wants to do. That's what He's here for. Romans says, so what then shall we say in response to all these things? If God is for us, we sang this a minute ago, who can be against us? Who can be against us? No, in all things we're more than conquerors through him who loves us. In all things. Is your God in a box? Is it a big box, a little box, whatever? It's time for you to crush your box and let God out and stop worrying about all the things that are coming your way and let God be the God He's wanted to be in your life and let Him conquer your giants. And you need to say, you come at me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come at you in the name of the Lord. And He doesn't fit in boxes. He's not small. He's a big G God. And the battle is the Lord's. I don't have anything to worry about. Stop going out and looking at your giants every day and turning around and running again and hoping overnight that somehow they went away. I don't know what they are. But it's time for you to be confident in a great big God that can't fit in a box, that the battle is the Lord's. Let's pray and we'll have communion. God, I pray that you'll be with us right now as we take communion and help us to remember as we eat this bread and drink this cup that we are literally taking the representation of the body and the blood of, of Jesus Christ into our system. And Jesus, you said, take and eat. 
This is, this is a representation of my body. Take and drink. This is my blood. And as we do that, help us to remember that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And we don't have anything to fear. That literally the Holy Spirit is living inside of us. That Jesus is living inside of us. That you, Almighty God, are living inside of us. So it's not about me. It's not about my gifts. It's not about the people who are telling me that it can't be done. It's not about any of the things that are going on on the outside. It's only about what's happening on the inside. And the battle is the Lord's. Lord, there may be people in this room who've um, not been around you for a while. And they're sitting there thinking right now, I wonder if I should take communion. I, I wonder where I'm at with God. Help them not to wonder. Help them to turn to you right now and say, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. I want you to run my life. I accept you. I give you my life. I'm going to follow you. I want the big G God inside of me. I want to get God out of that little box that I had him in, and I want him inside of here, and I'm going to follow him. And I'm going to take this cup, and I'm going to take both of these cups, and I'm going to, I'm going to eat, and I'm going to drink, and then I'm going to remember that greater is he that is in me. Lord, be with all of us as we do this now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.